tell you how good it is to be back home at Crossroads after a couple week absence, and I want to thank Patrick Garcia for covering for me. I was actually here the weekend before last, but I went back to the chapel venue and worshiped back there with the folks, just kind of wanted to get a feel for that and see what it was like, and it was, it was wonderful. I could almost be persuaded to go back there on a regular basis. If I didn't have this day job that keeps me up here on this platform on the weekends, you see. Well, it was a wonderful uh, experience to worship back there and to worship in uh, Santa Clarita, California, where we planted a new church in the year 2000-2001, I along with our son and uh, son-in-law. And uh, great to visit that church, to see what's happened in 13 years. They've already planted a new church in Ventura, California that, that runs between 500 and 1,000, and they are over 6,000. 13 years, and it's just young people and young couples everywhere in this valley that's really growing in population and uh, very underchurched, unchurched valley. So it was wonderful to experience that, but no place like home, no place like Crossroads. It was a wonderful thing to, to be back in worship here this morning, last night. And the folks last night, they paid attention to the weather. Now, you folks, I'm not so sure. And uh, last night we had a full house, and, uh, and we had a respectable group here at 9 o'clock. Crossroads never closes, you know. You never have to wonder whether we're going to have services. We're always going to have services. I'm two minutes away, folks. I can walk here, and I and my wife will be here, and we'll be glad to meet with you no matter what's going on out there. This was to be the first weekend that we used our section hosts, and uh, so they've gotten off easy this weekend. But our section host is a new ministry that we're starting here in our worship center, back in our chapel. We're assigning certain people to kind of shepherd areas of our worship center so we can make sure and integrate our new folks and get them acquainted, and we can have just an opportunity to, to create unity and goodwill and the extension of a warm friendship uh, to our visitors as well as our hometown folks. So... Uh, our section hosts, or maybe some of them here. Put your hand up if you're a section host. We've had 55 or 60 people who have undertaken this ministry, and thank you, thank you. Uh, you'll have more work to do next week, I'm sure of that. So, it's wonderful, uh, wonderful season. 2014 is going to be a wonderful year in the life of our church, contrary to the weather and the winter that we've had. It is going to be. I feel it in my bones. Well, you saw it's Tuesday of the week where we're living today. And I wonder if you could agree with this statement. Some of the most significant lives are quietly lived out by some of the most insignificant people. Dr. Russell Conwell is the author of the book Acres of Diamonds, and he tells the true story from the late 1800s of a nameless little girl who stood crying outside a small church from which she had been turned away because she was told it was too crowded. I can't go to Sunday school, she sobbed, to a stranger who turned out to be the pastor just as he was about to enter. And he noticed her shabby, unkempt appearance, and he was moved with compassion, and he took her by the hand, and he escorted her inside, and he found her a place in that Sunday school class. And that little girl was so touched that she went to bed that night thinking of other children like her who had no opportunity to learn about Jesus. Two years later, true story, the girl died 
and her mother called for that same pastor to conduct her funeral. And as her body was removed from the tenement apartment, her worn coin purse was found. Inside was 57 cents in pennies and a scrap of paper with words scribbled in childish print. This is to help build the church bigger so more children can go to Sunday school. For two years, she had saved up this special offering. When the pastor read her note, he knew immediately what he wanted to do with it. So he carried her cracked red pocketbook into the pulpit, and he told the story of the little girl's love and devotion. And he used her humble gift and the note to challenge church leaders to take a step of faith and to undertake the challenge of praying and working for the funds to build a larger building. And they did. But the story doesn't end there. The local newspaper heard about the story, and they published it, and it was read by a wealthy realtor, not even a Christian, who offered the church a parcel of land on North Broad Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, worth many thousands of dollars. And when he was told that the church could not pay the price, he offered it for only $10,000 with a down payment of 57 cents in pennies. People began to make sacrificial contributions and commitments, and within four years, the little girl's gift had increased to $250,000. That was a huge sum in that day and time, the equivalent of probably $4 million today. Her sacrificial gift had inspired amazing generosity. So if you are ever visiting in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, be sure and look up Temple Baptist Church with a seating capacity of 3,300. Or you might want to visit Temple University where 36,000 college students are trained. Or you could visit Good Samaritan Hospital in the city of Philadelphia. And the church has a 158,000-square-foot Sunday school building which houses hundreds of young boys and girls so that no child in that area will ever be left outside. And in one room of this Sunday school building, you'll see a picture of an insignificant little girl, Hattie Mae Wyatt, who's 57 cents made such a significant difference. Now, this is one of a half dozen stories I read like this in the past week in preparation for this weekend, stories of seeming insignificant people who lived significant lives, who had a significant impact. And would you believe that one of them is actually a story that took place during the week? It happened on Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life on earth, the most significant week in human history, and it's recorded in our text today, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling His disciples to Him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, 
this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Well, here in Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 21, the first four verses, you have two nearly identical accounts of this nameless, insignificant, poor widow who lived a significant life, who had a significant impact. And her example for over 20 centuries has inspired millions of Christ's followers to live lives of greater significance. And I sincerely pray that that's what it'll do for us today. Because here's my message in a single sentence. Anyone, anyone can live a life of significance. But I've got to be completely honest and tell you I'm really not all that comfortable with this text that I just read. It shames me. It does. It convicts me. Because unlike the deprivation of the poor widow in our text today, I feel like I've been afforded every advantage in life. I was blessed to be born into a solid middle-class family, raised by Christian parents who celebrated over 75 years of marriage before my dad's death. I don't remember ever missing a meal in my life unless I wanted to. Never had a broken bone, major surgery of any kind. I had an exceptional Christian education. I've never been unemployed. I've never been broke. I'm blessed with a wonderful wife and family. But in spite of having advantages that this poor widow did not have. I often find myself feeling exactly the way that widow must have felt. Insignificant. You ever feel that way? I remember sitting in a cotton bowl one summer evening with a hundred thousand people in the stands sitting lotus-legged on the grass infield while both Bill Bright and Billy Graham preached a hundred thousand people. I've never spoken to more than a tenth of that number at one time. And I've got a son who writes books. I don't know whether I've mentioned that before or you've noticed that before. And uh, his first book has uh, sold well over a million copies. I don't know what the count is now. It's been translated into several different languages. And his second book was a, was a number one best-selling Christian book back in October of 2013. I've never published a single volume. <laughs> Do you ever feel this way? Or is it just me? Do you ever feel insignificant? In my weaker moments, I sometimes wonder whether I will hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. I kind of imagine that I'll hear, Buddy, you barely made it, but come on in. <laughs> but you know, upon deeper reflection, here's the thing that encourages me. The significance of my life and yours is not measured by our accomplishments and accolades. It is not dependent on our rewards and recognition. It doesn't have anything to do with our health and wealth. Living a life of significance is dependent on something deeper, 
something that is available to every one of us regardless of our disadvantages or our advantages. In the end, the most important commendation, the only commendation that matters is the one that is bestowed by the Lord of life, Jesus Himself. And this poor widow that we just read about, she received His commendation. She impressed Jesus. So what was it He saw in her that He's looking for in you and me? It has to do with our inner life, our inner man, our inner woman. And you see, more often than not, when we read, we study this passage, it's with an emphasis on her good work of giving financially to advance God's purpose, and there is certainly a valid and helpful application for all of us in that. But the widow's gift is not my focus today. Rather, I want us to try to discover what was in her heart that mattered even more than her generosity. What was in her heart that inspired, that actually prompted her sacrificial gift? I want to know that. There's a lesson here for me as an insignificant person to live a significant life. I want to know that. And I think there are a couple of lessons, actually, that we can get from this widow this morning from our text that will help us live more significant lives. So those times when we feel insignificant, nothing wrong with that. probably helps our humility. But let's not let it erode our confidence that we can live a significant life. Lesson number one, it's not what you give, but it is how you love. In other words, it's not how much you give, it's how much you love. Now, the amount that this poor widow gave is paltry, to say the least. Her gift here has been called the widow's might. Maybe a day's pay for the most menial of jobs. Two copper coins worth a few cents in today's currency. But Jesus said she gave everything she had. She couldn't have given any more because she didn't have anything left to live on after making this contribution. She literally gave it all. She gave until it hurt. Now, some people only give what they know they'll never miss. Of others, it has been said, when it comes to giving, they will stop at nothing. Think about it. But when it came to the poor widow's gift, she only stopped when she had given everything. So was this commanded by Christ? No. Was it expected by the Old Testament law of the tithe? No, obviously not. Well, then why did she do it? It had to be the highest motive, the overflow of her love for God. Jesus once said, whoever is forgiven much loves much. So maybe this poor widow had been forgiven for a truckload of past sins. We don't know. Maybe her gift was a radical thank offering for God's grace in her life. Could be. Jesus also said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So maybe this widow's strategy in giving everything she had was to get her heart in the kingdom of God once and for all. She knew that her heart would follow her treasure, and she wanted her heart to belong to God. John Wesley once said, Whenever I have any money, I get rid of it as quickly as possible, lest it find a way into my heart. And Jesus also said, You can't serve two masters. 
You'll love the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So maybe this widow was trying to break the hold of money on her life. Because you see, the love of money is just as much a problem for the have-nots as it is for the haves. Maybe she knew that radical giving would help to divorce her from her love of money. We don't know her backstory, but I can tell you this. When you and I give, we need to be motivated by these same three realities. Number one, gratitude for God's grace in our lives, what He's made of us, how it has impacted us. Secondly, our desire to get our hearts into alignment with God's kingdom as a priority. And thirdly, to demonstrate our devotion to Him and to break off our love affair with the material world. Giving, you see, is an eloquent expression of love for God. Now, when our children were growing up at home, I really didn't need it when they gave gifts to me for Father's Day or my birthday. Usually, it was bought with my money anyhow, you know. <laughs> and I could, have, I could buy for myself anything that my children would buy for me, but they still gave me gifts. Why did they do that? The same reason I gave gifts to my father on Father's Day and his birthday. It's the way we say I love you, Dad. And for a father, for a father, the value of that gift of love cannot be measured in dollars. And that's why Jesus called His disciples all together and made this poor widow's gift into a teachable moment. It was all about her exemplary love for and worship of God. Something else here. I don't want to say more than the text says, but take a look at verse 41 again. Many rich people threw in large amounts. It's a different verb than the one describing the way the poor widow presented her offering. It says, verse 42, that she put in two very small copper coins. I suspect that the rich people that day were not motivated so much by love for God in their giving, but by one of a couple other motives. I think they might have given grudgingly. That's why they threw their offering, their large offering. They, they, they threw it in, kind of like saying, okay, God, take it then if you must have it. It strikes me that they might have been giving out of duty, out of legalistic obedience, and that's why they threw in their large amount. Or it could be that they gave so that they could be recognized and praised by people. You see, throwing in a large amount, that would have made some noise. That would have made some loud noise as it went into the temple coffers, and they wanted that to show, whereas the widows might, you know, clink, clink. They threw in large amounts. They were all about the show, while the widow was all about sincere and sacrificial love. She loves God and she loves others more than herself. It was rare then, it's rare now. You see, this widow knew that most of the money given in the temple offering would be distributed to the poor. And she could have rationalized, as some do today, I need it as much or more than they do. But she did. And the widow teaches us by her example that no one is too poor. No one is too needy to give. When Kayleen and I were first married, we lived right across the street from a 
a large blended family that resided in a dilapidated mobile home. And we had a telephone and they did not. So they would occasionally walk across the road and ask to use our phone. And we were glad to share it with them freely. But when I refused to take his money for the use of the phone, Joe would, would step into the kitchen and lay the coins on the counter and he, he would say, go ahead and just give it to some poor people. And I thought to myself, Joe, you and your family are the poorest folks I know. I never said it, but I thought it. But I'd admired, I admired his attitude, his attitude not unlike the attitude of the poor widow. One other thing before we move on. I've often thought, you know, this widow had two, she had two copper coins, right? Now, if she had had one coin, then the decision would have been simple. She either gives it or she keeps it for herself. But she had two coins, and so the choice is greater. She could have kept both of the coins. She could have given one and kept one. That seems logical to me, and it still would have been a generous gift. But it was in her heart of love to give both of them everything she had to live on. I'm deeply challenged, and I'm a little ashamed because of her love for God and people. I tell you, I have room to grow. Maybe you do too. Something else here, lesson two, it's not how much you give or not what you give, but it's how you trust. It's how much you trust. I, I think it's important to say some positive things here about the rich as they were observed by Jesus that day in the temple. First of all, the rich did give large gifts regardless of their motive. They had a lot and they evidently gave a lot and that is honorable. And that is something that is not often embraced. The statistics show that the more people have, the less charitably inclined they become. But here, these rich threw in large gifts. And Jesus doesn't rebuke the rich for what they gave as much as He admired the widow for what she gave in proportion to what she had. But I do want us to see that the rich brought an offering, and that is commendable, and I identify with the rich here. Because, you see, I live better than the rich in Jesus' day. Yes, and you do too. You know, we got more electricity than they had. We'll see how that goes the rest of the day today. You got more flushing toilets in your house than they did. And you got better food, and you got a warmer house in winter than they had. It could be said, it could be said that the poorest among us here today is richer than the rich that that came into the temple to present their offerings that day. Here's the thing. We don't ever want our wealth, our well-being, to keep us from trusting God. Well, secondly, these rich were not too busy to worship God. Hey, they were there in the temple. They showed up to learn the Word of God. They voted their priorities with their presence. They were not so harried after the work week that they had nothing left to offer God in worship assembly, and they didn't work seven out of seven days a week. Their lives were not out of balance. 
And they didn't consider the Sabbath as their only morning to sleep in, in spite of their busy lives. The rich were in the right place at the right time for the right purpose. They had the right priorities. More evidence of their trust. Well, thirdly, you know, these rich, they were givers. They were not just getters. Our children today are constantly impressed with the advantages of getting. But they seldom learn the ethic, the importance of giving. And the fact is, it's a deeper thrill. Scripture is right. It is more blessed. It will make you happier to give than to receive. But where are kids going to learn that today? This deeper thrill that many of them never get to experience. How are they going to get it? Getting and not giving is behind the tendency that people have to lie and cheat and steal and embezzle and gamble and overspend. But why, why are people allowed to go down that path in life? It's because they never learn the pleasure of giving. And in contrast, these godly, well-to-do folks, let's say this about them, they were givers. They were not just getters in life. Still, Jesus does draw a distinction between the rich people and the poor widow. In verse 44, again, they all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And I wonder, don't you? I wonder what was going on in that widow's mind as we watch her walk away. She had just given the last of her meager resources, and she's got no husband to take care of her, and she's got no income. And she's got no food stamps, and she's got no social security. What's going to happen to her? How is she going to make ends meet? After church today, some of us will drop by a restaurant, go home or to a warm home, raid the refrigerator. This widow went home not knowing about her daily bread. And Jesus gestured to her in teaching his disciples a vital lesson about trusting God. But you can't help but wonder. Will God meet the needs of this woman after giving to God so sacrificially? Are we going to assume that now she's on her own? Well, I for one am confident that God was faithful to provide for her in ways that we can't imagine. Now, we don't, we don't know her story, but I expect her story would be like the story of another widow, the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17 who made bread for Elijah the prophet with the last bit of her oil and her last handful of flour. And she did it to honor God. But she anticipated that after she made this bread for Elijah the prophet, that she and her only son, as a result, would die of starvation. But you know what she found out? She found out that from that day on, her jar of flour was not used up. How great would that be? We've got four grandkids staying with us this weekend. They can go through a box of cereal in one sitting. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a box of Rice Krispies that just never gets empty and you never have to go pay five or six dollars for another box? And her jar of oil, her jar of oil did not run dry again. 
Wouldn't it be nice, a gallon of milk in the refrigerator, you just keep using it and using it, and it never spoils, and you never have to replace it. Well, that was, that was the widow of Zarephath's story. And then sometime later, when her son unexpectedly died, it was God, through the prophet Elijah, who miraculously restored that boy's life and gave him back to his mother. It's predictable for us to give God only what we think we can afford. Seldom seems to us that we could give in such a way that we would have to trust God to provide. But let me ask you, have you ever given in a way that God had to step up and provide for you? <laughs> Jesus pointed to the widow in the temple to say, this poor woman has given the largest offerings. All these others made offerings that they'll never miss. She extravagantly gave what she could not afford to give. It's not how much you give. It's how much you love. It's not how much you give. It's how much you trust. It's ironic to me that we're talking about living a life of significance this weekend. The annual Academy Award weekend. Tonight the Hollywood crowd will be out in force at their self-congratulatory best. Designer gowns and tuxes, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, gold, their elaborate hairdos, their half-a-day makeup sessions. They'll strike one pose after another for flashing cameras on the red carpet, and the impressionistic public will be mesmerized once again this year by their wealth, by their attractiveness, by their fame, by their success. And the event will be talked about all this next week in the news, on the talk shows. These are the significant people of our generation, right? Not necessarily. Not if you get your value system from Jesus and what He congratulates and commands. Then you shift your focus. You shift your focus from the superficial impressions made by the rich and the comely and the accomplished, most of whom, let's be honest, are living their lives for themselves, unapologetically, for themselves. We shift our focus from them and we fix our eyes on a poor, solitary widow who demonstrates great love for God and great trust in God. She gave her all and in so doing, her deed reminds me of the cross of Christ. And I wonder this morning, are you ready to make Him your Savior and Lord? Are you ready to surrender all you are, all you ever hope to be to Jesus? Are you ready to become a part of His church here at Crossroads? Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, thank you for calling us all together in this place this morning for worship and we thank you 
for the account recorded by Mark and Luke of the poor widow's offering. We thank you for what we have to learn from her about loving you and trusting you. And we pray that lesson will stay with us from this day forward. And it does remind us of our Savior, Jesus, who was rich but for our sakes became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. We are debtors, Lord, to Jesus for his grace. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives would be lived out in gratitude, in love and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.